Section 9 of Supermind by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 2. The door swung open before Major Petkoff reached it. A doorman was holding it and bowing to each of the four as they passed. He was dressed in Victorian livery, complete to knee breeches and lace, and Malone thought this was rather odd for the classless Russian society. But the doorman was only the opening note of a great symphony. Inside there were tables and chairs, or at least Malone told himself that's what he thought they were. They were massive wood affairs, carved into torturous shapes and gilded or painted in all sorts of colors that glittered madly under the barrage of several electric chandeliers. The chandeliers hung from a frescoed ceiling and looked much too heavy. They swayed and tinkled in time to the music that filled the room, but for a second Malone looked past them at the ceiling. It appeared to represent some sort of Russian heaven at the end of the five-year plan. There were officers and ladies eating grapes, waltzing, strolling on white puffy clouds, singing, drinking, making love. There was an awful lot of activity going on up on the ceiling, and it wasn't until Malone lowered his gaze that he realized that none of this activity had been exaggerated. True, there were no white puffy clouds, and he couldn't immediately locate a bunch of grapes anywhere, but there were the musicians in the same Victorian outfits as the doorman, three fiddlers, a cellist, and a man who played piano. Just like in nightclubs in bourgeois Paris, Petkoff said, following Malone's gaze with every evidence of pride. Between the musicians and Malone, there were a lot of tables and chairs and ancient, proud-looking waiters who appeared to have been hired when Trotkins had opened, and that, Malone thought, had been a long, long time ago. He felt like those two ladies whose names he couldn't remember, who said they'd slipped back in time. Officers and their ladies, the men in glittering uniforms, the ladies in ball dresses of every imaginable shade, cut, material, and degree of exposure, were waltzing around the room, looking very polite and old-world. Others were sitting at the tables, where candles fluttered, completely useless, in the electric glare. The noise was something terrific, but somehow it was all very well bred. The head waiter was suddenly next to them. He hadn't walked there, at least not noticeably. He appeared to have perfected the old-world manner of the silent servant. Or, of course, Malone thought, the man might be a teleport. "'Ah, Major Petkoff,' he said in a silken voice. "'It is so good to see you again, and your friends.' "'Americans,' Petkoff said. "'They have come to see the glorious Soviet Union.' "'Ah,' the head-waiter said. "'Your usual table, Major?' Petkoff nodded. The head-waiter led the party through the dancers, snaking slowly along until they reached the large table near the musicians and at the edge of the dance floor. Her Majesty automatically took the seat nearest the musicians, which she imagined to be the head of the table. Lou sat at her left hand and Malone at her right, his back against the wall. Petkoff took the foot of the table, called a waiter over, and ordered for the party. He did a massive job of it, with two waiters, at last, taking down what seemed to be his entire memoirs, plus the list of all the soldiers in the Red Army 
below the rank of grand exalted elk, or whatever it might have been. Malone had no idea what the Major was ordering, except that it sounded extensive and very, very Russian. Finally, the waiter went on his way. Major Peckoff turned to Malone and smiled. Naturally, he said, we will begin with vodka. Niet? Malone considered saying niet, but he didn't feel that this was the time or the place. Besides, he told himself grimly, it would be a sad day when a Petkoff could drink a Malone under the table. His proudest heritage from his father was an immense capacity, he told himself. Now was his chance to test it. And naturally, a little caviar to go with it, Petkoff added. Certainly, Malone said, as if caviar were the most common thing in the world in his usual Washington saloons. It wasn't long before the waiter reappeared, bringing four glasses and three bottles of vodka chilled in an ice bucket, like a bouquet of champagne. Pekoff bowed him out after one bottle had been opened, set the glasses up, and began to pour. "'Oh, goodness,' Her Majesty started to say. "'None for me, thanks,' Lou chimed in. "'Oh, yes,' Her Majesty said. "'I don't think I'll have any either. An old lady has to be very careful of her system, you know.' "'You do not look like an old lady,' Petkoff said gallantly. "'Middle-aged, perhaps, to be cruel, but certainly not old. "'Not over, oh, perhaps forty. "'Her Majesty smiled politely at him. "'Malone began to wonder if it had been gallantry after all. "'From what he had seen of the Russian women, "'it was likely, after all, that Petkoff really thought Her Majesty "'wasn't much over forty at that. "'You're very flattering, Major,' Her Majesty said, "'but I assure you that I'm a good deal older than I look.' Malone tried to tell himself that no one else had noticed the stifled gulp that had followed that remark. It had been his own stifled gulp, and his face, he felt sure, had aged one hundred and twelve years within a second or so. He waited for Her Majesty to tell Major Petkoff just how old she really was. But she said nothing else. After a second, she turned and smiled at Malone. Thanks, he said. Oh, you're quite welcome, she said. Petkoff frowned at both of them, shrugged, and readied the bottle. Well, then, he said, it seems as if the drinking will be done by men. And that is right. Vodka is a drink for men. He had filled his own glass full of the cold, clear liquid. Now he filled Malone's. He stood glass in hand. Malone also climbed to his feet. To the continued friendship of our two countries, Pekoff said. He raised his glass for a second, then downed the contents. Malone followed suit. The vodka burned its merry way into his stomach. They sat. A waiter arrived with a large platter. Ah, Petkoff said, turning. Try some of this caviar, Mr. Malone. You will find it the finest in the world. Malone, somehow, had never managed to develop a taste for caviar. He was willing to admit, if pressed, that this made him an uncultured slob. But caviar always made him think of the joke about the country bumpkin who thought it was marvelous that you could soften up buckshot just by soaking it in fish oil. Now, though, he felt he had to be polite, and he tried some of the stuff. All things considered, it wasn't quite as bad as he thought it was going to be, and it did make a pretty good chaser for the vodka. Her Majesty also helped herself to some caviar. 
"'My goodness,' she said. "'This reminds me of the old days.' Malone waited once again with bated breath. But though Her Majesty may have been crazy, she wasn't stupid. She said nothing more. Petkoff, meanwhile, refilled the glasses and looked expectantly at Malone. This time it was his turn to propose the toast. He thought for a second, then stood up and raised his glass. "'To the most beautiful woman in all the world,' he said, feeling just a little like a character in War and Peace, Luba Vaslanova Garbibich. "'Ah,' Petkoff said, smiling approvingly. Malone executed a little bow in Lou's direction and followed Petkoff in downing the drink. Two more glasses of vodka wended their torturous way into the interior. "'Tell me, colleague,' Petkoff said, as he spooned up some more caviar. "'How are things in the United States?' Malone shot a glance at Her Majesty, but she was concentrating on something else, and her eyes seemed far away. "'Oh, all right,' he said, at last. "'Of course you must say so,' Petkoff murmured. "'But as one colleague to another, tell me, how much longer do you think it will be before the proletarian uprising in your country?' There were a lot of answers to that, Malone told himself, but he chose one without too much difficulty. "'Well, that's hard to judge,' he said. "'I'd hate to make any prediction. I don't have enough information.' Not enough information, Petkoff said. I don't understand. Malone shrugged. Since our proletariat, he said, have shown no signs of wanting any rebellion at all, how can I predict when they are going to rebel? Petkoff gave him an unbelieving smile. Well, he said, we must have patience, on colleague. I guess so, Malone said, watching Petkoff pour more vodka. By the time the meal came, Malone was feeling a warm glow in his interior, but no real fogginess. The dance floor had been cleared by this time, and a group of six costume professionals glided out and took places. The musicians broke out into a thunderous and bumpy piece, and the dancers began some sort of Slavic folk dance that looked like a combination of a kazoka and a shivari. Malone watched them with interest. They looked like good dancers, but they seemed to be plagued with clumsiness. They were always crashing into one another. On the other hand, Malone thought, maybe it was part of the dance. It was hard to tell. The dinner was as extensive as anything Malone had ever dreamed of. Borscht, beef stroganoff, smoked fish, vegetables in gigantic tureens, ices and cheeses and fruits, and always, between the courses, during the courses, and at every available moment, there was vodka. The drinking didn't bother him too much, but the food was too much. Unbelieving, he watched Pekoff polish off a large red apple, a pear, and a small wedge of white, creamy-looking cheese at the end of the towering meal. Her Majesty was staring, too, in a very polite manner. Lou simply looked glassy-eyed and overstuffed. Malone felt a good deal of sympathy for her. Petkoff finished a wedge of cheese and ripped off a belch of incredible magnitude and splendor. Malone felt he should applaud, but managed to restrain himself. Her Majesty looked startled for a second and then regained her composure. Only Lou seemed to take the event as a matter of course, which set Malone to wondering about her home life. 
Somehow he couldn't picture her wistful little father ever producing a sound of such awesome magnitude. My dear colleague, Petkoff was saying. Malone turned to him and tried to look interested. There is one thing I have wondered for many years. Really, Malone said politely. That is right, Petkoff said. For years, there has never been a change of name in your organization of secret police. We're not secret police, Malone said. Petkoff gave a massive shrug. Naturally, he said, one must say this, but surely one tires of being called FBI all the time. One does, Malone said. I don't know. It gives a person a sort of sense of security. Ah, Petkoff said, but take us, for instance. We pride ourselves on our ability to camouflage ourselves. GPU and then OGPU, which were, I understand, subject for many capitalist jokes. Malone tried to look as if he couldn't imagine such a thing. I suppose they might have been, he said. Then we were NKVD, Petkoff said, and now MVD. And I understand, quite between us, Mr. Malone, that there is talk of further change. There was a sudden burst of applause. Malone wondered what for, looked at the dance floor, and realized that the six Slavic dancers were taking bows. As he watched, one of them slipped and nearly fell. The musicians obliged with a final series of chords, and the dancers trotted away. A waltz began, and couples from the tables began crowding the floor. "'How can you manage your proletariat?' Pekoff asked, "'if you do not keep them confused.' "'We don't exactly,' Malone said. "'They more or less manage us.' "'Ha!' Pekoff said, dismissing this with a wave of his hand. Propaganda. And then he, too, turned to watch the dancers. The waltz was finishing, and a foxtrot had begun. With your permission, Mr. Malone, he said, rising, I should like to ask so lovely Miss Garbivich to dance with me. Malone glanced at the girl. She gave him a quick smile, with just a hint of nervousness or strain in it, and turned to Petkoff. I'd be delighted, Major, she said. Malone shut his own mouth. As the girl rose, he got to his feet and gave the couple a small Victorian bow. Petkoff and Lou walked to the floor, and Malone, sitting down again, watched enviously as he took her in his arms and began to guide her expertly across the floor in time to the music. Malone sighed. Some men, he told himself, had all the luck. But, of course, Lou had to be polite, too. She didn't really like Petkoff, he told himself. She was just being diplomatic. And he had made some progress with her on the plane, he thought. He looked over at Her Majesty, but the Queen was staring abstractedly at a crystal chandelier. Malone sighed again, took a little caviar, and washed it down with vodka. The vodka felt nice and warm, he thought vaguely. Vodka was good. It was too bad that the people who made such good vodka had to be enemies. But that's the way things were, he told himself philosophically. Terrible, that's how things were. The foxtrot went to its conclusion. Malone saw Petkoff chatting animately with Lou, lead her off to a small bar at the opposite side of the room. Some people, he muttered, have too much luck or too much diplomacy. 
Her Majesty was tugging at his arm. That, Malone thought, was going to be more bad news. It was. Sir Kenneth, she said softly, do you realize that this place is full of NVD men? Of course you don't. I haven't told you yet. Malone opened his mouth, shut it again, and thought in a hurry. If the place were full of NVD men, that meant they probably had it bugged. And that meant several things, all of them unpleasant. Her Majesty shouldn't have said anything. She shouldn't have shown any nervousness or anxiety in the first place. She shouldn't have known there were so many MVD men in the second place, because there was no way for her to know, except through her telepathy, a little secret Malone did not want the Russians to find out about. And she should definitely, most definitely, had not called him Sir Kenneth. Oh, Her Majesty said, I am sorry, sir, or Mr. Malone. You're quite right, you know. Sure, Malone said. Well, my goodness, he thought of something to say and said it at once. Of course there are MDV men here. This is just a place for good old MDV men to come when they get off duty. A nice, relaxing place full of fun and dancing and food and vodka. And he was thinking at the same time, are they doing anything odd? Russian, you know, Her Majesty said almost conversationally, is an extremely difficult language. It takes a great deal of practice to learn to think in it really fluently. Yes, I should think it would, Malone said absently. You mean, you haven't been able to pick up what these people are thinking? Oh, one can get the main outlines, Her Majesty went on, but a really full knowledge is nearly impossible, though, of course, it isn't quite as bad as all that. A man who speaks both languages, like our dear Major Petkoff, for instance, so charming, so full of joie de vivre, could be an invaluable assistant to anyone interested in learning exactly how Russians really think. She smiled nervously. Her face was suddenly set and strained. I find that. She stopped then, very suddenly. Her eyes widened, and her right hand reached out to grasp Malone's arm more strongly than he had thought she ever could. Sir Kenneth, her voice, all restraint gone, was a hissing whisper. Malone started to say something, but Her Majesty went on, her eyes wide. Do something quickly, she said. What? Malone said. They've put something in the loose drink, Her Majesty hissed. Malone was on his feet before she finished, and he took a step across the room. She's already swallowed it, the Queen said. Do something quickly. The dancers on the floor were no concern of his, Malone told himself grimly. He didn't decide to move. He was on his way before any thought filtered through into his mind. Officers and their ladies looked after him with shocked stupor as he plowed his way across the dance floor, using legs, elbows, shoulders, and anything else that allowed him free passage. Sometimes the dancers managed to get out of his way. Sometimes they didn't. It was all the same to Kenneth J. Malone. Her Majesty followed in his wake, silent and stricken, scurrying after him like a small destroyer following a battleship, or like a ball-carrying grandmother following up her interference. Malone caught sight of Lou standing at the bar. In that second, she seemed to realize for the first time that something was wrong. She pushed herself violently away from the bar and looked frantically around, her mouth opening to call. Petkoff was a blur next to her. Malone didn't look at him clearly. 
Lou took a step. And two men with broken, lumpy faces came through a door somewhere in the rear of the restaurant, closer to her than Malone. Petkoff suddenly swam into sight. He was standing very still and looking entirely baffled. Malone pushed through a pair of dancers, ignoring their glares, and the man hissed insult, which he didn't understand anyhow, and found his view suddenly blocked by a large expanse of dark gray. It was somebody's chest in a uniform. Malone shifted his gaze half an inch and saw a row of gold buttons. He looked upward. There, towering above him, was a face. It stared down, looking heavy and cruel and stupid. Malone, his legs still carried him forward, bounced off the chest and staggered back a step or two. He heard a hissed curse behind him and realized without thinking about it that he had managed to collide with the same pair of dancers again. He didn't look around to see them. Instead, he looked ahead, at the giant who blocked his path. The man was about six feet, six inches tall, a great Mongol, who weighed about a sixth of a ton. But he didn't look fat. He looked strong instead, and enormously massive. Malone sidestepped, and the Mongol moved slightly to block him. To one side, Malone saw Her Majesty scurrying by. The Mongol was apparently more interested in Malone than in trying to stop sweet little old ladies. Malone saw Her Majesty heading for the bar and forgot about her for the second. The Mongol shifted again to block Malone's forward progress. "'What seems to be such great hurry, Tovarich?' he said, in a voice that sounded like an earthquake warning. "'Have you no culture?' Why you run across floor in such impolite manner? The man might have been blocking his way because of Lou, or might simply want to teach an uncultured Americansky a lesson. Malone couldn't tell which, and it didn't seem to matter. He whirled and reached for a glass of vodka standing momentarily unattended on a nearby table. He tossed the vodka at the giant's eyes and scooted around the mountain of flesh before it erupted with a volcanic succession of Russian curses that shook the room with their volume and sincerity. But Lou and Her Majesty were nowhere in sight. Major Petkoff was staring, and Malone followed his line of sight. A door in the rear of the restaurant was just closing. Behind it, Malone saw Her Majesty and Lou disappearing from sight. Malone knocked over a waiter and headed for Petkoff. "'What's going on here?' he bellowed over the crash of dishes and the rising wave of Russian profanity. Petkoff shrugged magnificently. I have no idea, colleague, he said. I have no ideas. But, she? Miss Garbivich was taken suddenly ill, Petkoff said. Damn sudden, Malone growled. Her friend Miss Thompson has taken her to the ladies' room, Petkoff said. He gestured, narrowly missing a broken, lumpy face Malone had seen before. You are under arrest, the face said. Its partner peered over Petkoff's shoulder. I, Petkoff said. Not you, the face said, him. He started for Malone, and Petkoff threw out both arms. Hold, he said. My orders are to see that this man is not molested. The guests had suddenly and silently melted away. Malone backed off a step, looking for something to stage a fight with. On the other hand, comrade, one of the lumpy-faced men said, We have orders also. My orders, Petkoff began. Your orders do not exist, the other lumpy man said. 
We are to arrest this man. Our orders say so. You are fools, Petkoff said. He spread his arms wider, blocking both of them. Malone edged back against the bar, feeling behind him for a bottle or maybe a bung starter. Instead, his hand touched the sleeve. A voice behind him bellowed, Cease! The two lumpy-faced men goggled. Petkoff did not move. Malone turned and saw a tall, thin civilian with dark glasses. Cease, the civilian repeated. It is the girl we are to arrest. The girl. This is not a girl, one of the lumpy men said. Sir, we are to arrest this man. Our orders say distinctly. Never mind your orders, Petkoff said. Go and reduce your orders to shreds and stuff them up your nostrils and die of suffocation. My orders say... The girl, the civilian said. Where's the girl? Malone darted forward. Petkoff caught him neatly with one arm as he went by. Until we decide what to do, the MVD man said, you stay here. Malone bucked against him, but he could get nowhere. Meanwhile, Petkoff said, I'm for letting you go. I appreciate it, Malone said through his teeth. How about proving it? If you let him go, a lumpy man said, you will answer to our group head. Petkoff tightened his hold protectively. Meanwhile, the civilian was climbing up into a stratospheric rage. You are dolts, imbeciles, worms without brains, and walking bellies filled with carrion, he said magnificently. I have orders which I am sworn to carry out. You are not alone, Petkoff said. Malone took another try at a getaway and failed. We take precedence, a lumpy man said. We can talk later. Arrest comes first. But who? the civilian snapped. I insist. There shall be no arrests, Petkoff screamed. No one is to be arrested at all. I swear by the bones of Stalin that my orders state, the tall man began. The bones of Stalin are with us, a lumpy man said. Go and die in a kennel filled with fleas and old newspapers. Go and freeze to the likeness of an obscene statue of a bourgeois deity. Go and hang by the ears from a monument four thousand feet high in the center of the great desert. Inspired, the other lumpy man screamed, Charge! and came for Petkoff and the civilian. Petkoff whirled, letting go of Malone in order to beat back this wave of maddened attackers, and Malone took the advantage. He ducked free under Petkoff's left arm and started around the gesticulating, screaming, fighting group for the door at the back of the restaurant. He took exactly four steps. Then he stopped. The Mongol, his eyes red with a combination of vodka and bull-roaring rage, was charging toward him, his hands outflung and his fingers grasping at the air. Warmonger, he was shouting, capitalist slave owner, leprous, an ancient cannibal without culture. You have begun a war you cannot finish. Ha, Malone said feeling inadequate to the occasion. As the Mongol charged, he felt a wave of intense pragmatism come over him. He reached back towards the bar, grabbed a bottle of vodka, and tossed several glassfuls into the giant's face. The Mongol, deluged and screaming, clawed wildly at his eyes and spun round several times, cursing Malone and all his kin for the next twenty-seven generations, and grabbing thin air in his attempt to reach the Americansky. 
all of the customers appeared to have discovered urgent engagements elsewhere. There was little for the Mongol to collide with except empty tables and chairs, but he did manage to swipe one of the lumpy-faced men on the side of the head with one flail of his arms. The lumpy-faced man said, Yoop, and went staggering away into Petkoff, who spun him around and threw him away in the general direction of the bandstand. The diversion provided Malone with just enough time to start moving again. Four uniformed men were making their way toward the ladies' room from the opposite side of the restaurant. They were carrying a stretcher, which seemed pitifully inadequate for the carnage Malone had just left. He blocked their path. "'Where are you going?' he said. "'You are American?' one of them said. "'I speak English good, no?' Behind him, Malone heard a yowl and a crunch, as of a body striking wood. It sounded as if somebody had fetched up against the bar. "'You speak English fine,' he said, feeling wildly out of place. "'Have you been taking lessons?' "'Me,' the man said. "'It is no time for talk. We got to get Lady to hospital.' "'Lady,' Malone said, "'for hospital?' "'Miss Garbivich, her name is,' the stretcher man said, trying to get past Malone. The FBI agent shifted slightly, blocking the path. We wait outside one revolution. One what? When the hand revolves once, the man said, one hour. Now we get call, so we take her to hospital. It sounded suspicious to Malone. He heard more yells behind him, and they sounded a little closer. The sound of running men came to his ears. Well, he said happily, goodbye, all. The stretcher-bearer said, what? Malone shoved him backward into the approaching mob, grabbed the stretcher away from the other three men, who were acting a little dazed, and swung it in a wide arc. He caught an MVD man in the stomach, and the man doubled up with a weird whistling groan, turned slightly in agony, and hit another MVD man with his bowed head. The second man fell. Malone heard more crashes and screaming, but he didn't find out any details. Instead, he threw the stretcher at the milling mob and turned, already in motion, racing for the ladies' room. He had no notion of what he was going to do when he got there or what he was going to find. Her Majesty and Lou were in there, all right, but how were they going to get out without being arrested, clubbed, disemboweled, or taken to a Russian hospital for God alone knew what novel purposes? His mind was still a little foggy from the vast amounts of vodka he had poured down, and he wasn't in the least sure that teleportation would even work. He tried to figure out whether Her Majesty had already carried Lou off that way, but he doubted it. Lou was quite a burden for an old woman, and besides, he wasn't at all sure whether it was possible to teleport a human being. A lump of inanimate matter is one thing. An intelligent woman with a mind of her own is definitely something else. It seemed to take forever for him to reach the door, and he was panting heavily when he reached for it. Suddenly, another hand shot in front of his, turning the doorknob. Malone looked up. It was impossible to figure out where she had come from or what she thought she was doing, but a bulging, slightly intoxicated Russian matron with bluish hair piled high on her head, a rusty orange dress, and altogether too many jewels scattered here and there about her ample person, stood regarding him 
with a mixture of scorn, surprise, and shock. Malone crowded her aside without a thought and jerked the door open. Behind her, he could see the melee still continuing, though it looked by now as if the Russians weren't very sure who they were supposed to be fighting. The Mongol's great head rose for a second above the storm, shouting something unintelligible, and dropped again into the crowd. Malone focused on the matron, who was standing with her mouth open, staring at him. "'Madam,' he said with stern dignity, "'wait your turn.' He ducked inside and slammed the door behind him. There was a small knob to bolt the door with, and he used it. But it wasn't going to hold long, he knew. If the mob outside ever got straightened out, the door would go down like a piece of cardboard, bolt or no bolt. Undoubtedly, the gigantic Mongol could do the job with one hand tied behind his back. Malone turned around and put his own back to the door. Women were looking up and making up their minds whether or not to scream. Time stood absolutely still. Nobody seemed to be moving, not even the two directly before him, a frightened-looking old lady who was trying to hold up a semi-conscious redhead. And somewhere behind him, he knew, was a howling mob of thoroughly maddened Russians. End of Chapter 7, Part 2